Well, we're privileged and we're blessed to be able to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And I'm going to read that. And as I read these verses, I really would like us, each one of us, you and me, all of us, all y'all and me, this morning to really internalize this verse and put your name in place of the you up here and think about all of us here when there's a we or an us. And let's really let these things sink in for a second. Scripture records, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among who also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, and even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Isn't just the thought of these verses astounding? Greg, God is telling me, you were sick. Greg, you were so dysfunctional, and I couldn't even look upon you. Greg, you were dead to God. But, but what? But God. But God has made you alive, Greg, alive with Christ. I was dead, but now I'm alive. All because of Christ. All because, but God worked. And I've been seated with Christ in heavenly places with all of y'all who trust in Christ as their Savior. All I have to say is God has such a wonderful sense of humor to put us all together in a room and then in eternity seated with Christ. Mm. All right. It's all a done deal. That's a fact. God said it, and God did these things. So, just think of that. Where I've come from, and there's one person, there's two people, really, 
in this room that really know where I've come from. And they should be astounded that God saved me. That, of course, is my bride and Tom Nagy. So we're going to be looking at some scriptures, other scriptures of things where it's recorded. But God did something. One of my favorite verses is, man makes plans, and God does what? He laughs. And I'm glad he does, because I've made some horrible plans that would have been disastrous for me. But God interceded. And I want to do this in the vein of trying to keep in mind what Tom taught about last week and earlier this March of this year. And in those teachings, he talked about us having a real substance in delivering the gospel message. Something that was very real. Something more than just, hey, let me tell you about my Savior. Now that's real. But people need to know the real you in delivering the gospel message. He encouraged us to develop a passion to lead others to have what we have. And those verses in Ephesians 2, we have an awful lot. He encouraged us and exhorted us to take a biblical, scriptural approach rather than modern man's approach. To evangelism. He asked us to develop or improve that biblical mindset that he spoke of last Sunday. To use a gospel message not based on man, but upon the God of the scriptures and all of his promises. And he even astonished us with some of these facts, and I'm just going to briefly go over them. Fifty percent of today's Christian pastors do not have a biblical worldview. And they teach from the pulpit there are no absolutes, no moral standards. But they call themselves Christians. Only 12% of today's youth pastors or leaders have a biblical mindset. And 67% of today's parents of teenagers claim to be Christians yet only 2% of those have a biblical worldview. Mm. He included a quote from Billy Graham who said, I suspect our own lack of commitment to Jesus is the reason we don't evangelize more. And then Graham spoke of, according to Tom, the poverty of our own experience. That chewed on me all week long. That thought right there, the poverty of my experience. And I tell you what, since I've come to know Christ, I feel like a rich man. Liz and I had been married about three years, I think, is what it was when we... We both became saved. And we both realized that without Christ in our lives, we wouldn't have made it as a husband and wife. I'm a rich man. My bride is still sitting right there. 
But I got to thinking about this, the poverty of my own experience. And I was thinking, if that's true, and it probably is, then I must have forgotten some of God's great promises, such as this one found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is, is, is in the world through lust. Does that sound like poverty to you? Somebody that's been giving all things necessary? It doesn't to me. So, God's word has said he's given me all of these things. Why am I living in spiritual poverty? Which I'll tell you right now, I am. So I've concluded, I must not be realizing who I am in Christ, who God is, what his great promises are and what he's done. Just the two verses that we've read today, what magnificent things he's done. That's why we're sitting here. That's why we're able to sit here. Not realizing these things does sound a lot like spiritual poverty to me. In fact, that sounds like I'm the poorest man in the whole world. You know, here at CBC, we know what to do when we're impoverished. We throw a big meal. We get together. We feast. When we experienced the poverty of being separated from one another during the great quarantine, That's what we were. We were impoverished. We were starving to death for one another's fellowship. And so what we did, as soon as it seemed practical and seemed possible and and safe based on what we knew back then, what did we do? We started gathering together again, little by little, and we met outside, and then we started moving Inside, and then we started having potlucks to build up the community and to encourage one another, as Scripture tells us to do, and to speak psalms and songs to each other to encourage us. In fact, even this Friday evening, we're going to have a salsa contest. Do you think it's because every one of us loves salsa that much? Well, it's pretty good. I I do like it. But we're doing this to get together more, to, as Alex was saying, build the family community sense. And we realize that just once a month in a potluck is probably not enough to do that. So salsa competition, here we come, Friday night. And it should be a grand time. Take your tums or Prevacid, or whatever it is, 
but come to enjoy and come to enjoy each other. So applying what we think is good to feast to my spiritual poverty, I've decided that the, the remedy for that is also feasting. I need to feast on the promises of God. I need to feast on his holy scriptures. I need to tarry a little bit longer with him in the morning and at night before I go to bed. I need to spend a little more time in prayer. And I need to spend a little bit more time in meditating on his word and his tremendous promises. You know, develop and continue to maintain that biblical worldview Tom was talking about. I need to read scripture and read it again. And then I need to read it again. My freshman year in college, and I know some of you that just hit like a ton of bricks. You went to college? I once thought I was going to be a, a Mr. Doctor. And I was taking a freshman year college class called cytology. My, uh, what are those, guidance counselors signed me up for it. I had to go look and see how to spell cytology. And it's a fancy word for cell biology. Okay, so I grabbed the book, and it was only about this thick, maybe an inch and a half at the most. And I tried to read. I thought I'll read the first three chapters before the first class. Well, I got through two pages of the first chapter, and I was so overwhelmed, and I had no idea what it was talking about. So I, I went to class, and our professor's name was Dr. Busher. And he walked in, and he slammed that book on the table, and he said, I've been told that if you want to digest this book, you have to eat it. And he got everyone's attention, and I was all of 18 years old and scared to death because I didn't understand the book. And that's what I need to be doing with Scripture. I need to eat Scripture. To digest it. So, so that I can recall in not just the moments where we're supposed to be in the scriptures, but at all times in my life, I can recall what God has told me to do, what God says he has done, and what God says he will do in a moment's notice. So, Here we go with some but God verses. But God, while we were still his enemy, but God saved us, and we need to remember at all times that it was God, but God. So in the remainder of our time this morning, let's just look a few of these instances of Scripture where but God provides for his people and his plan. And Paula, I believe, you're going to read for us, I think. Now, 
Now, you know this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, as Joseph was the number two man in Egypt, and his brothers had no idea who he was. And this goes right with it. Teresa? Yes. And also in the New Testament, Jesse? But God was with him. To accomplish God's promises, God watched over his people. And he thwarted some pretty evil things that man was doing. But God is very capable. Tom, I think this is you. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she was married. Hmm. You know, Abraham entering this country, traveling with his wife and half-sister, Sarah, said, I'm very afraid that I'm afraid that they will look at your beauty and they'll kill me and take you. So you just tell them that you're my sister. We've marveled about this in Friday morning Bible study about what kind of man would do that to his wife? <laughs> yeah. And still beautiful. <laughs> true but can you imagine God's promises through Abraham you will have a son who will be the seed for everybody Abraham from you and if old Abby here had partaken of Sarah that would have jeopardized that plan but God warned Abimelech. And we find David hiding in the wilderness. Big John? David stayed in the wilderness in a stronghold and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Zidon. Yeah. You know, David was scared to death of Saul. Saul was crazy and was trying to kill him. But God did not hand David over to, to Saul. Verse 1 of Second Chronicles chapter 20 tells us that the Moabites and the Ammonites, together with a whole lot of other ites, were planning to make war against King Jehoshaphat. Verse 2 says it was a vast army. And the king said, this was Jehoshaphat, as he cried out to God, we are powerless before this vast army, and we do not know what to do. Then the Spirit of the Lord came over Jehazel, and verse 15 records this. Mick.
Isn't that amazing? By all human reasoning, Jerusalem should have been wiped out. They were overwhelmed. They were doomed. And old King Jehoshaphat realized it and did the only thing he could, the only thing he knew, and he cried out to God. He should have been doomed. But guess what? But God had other plans. All right. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, men of Israel, it's recorded, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Oh, can I get an amen? Wow. All right, and also in Acts chapter 13, Trent? But God raised Jesus from the dead. This is God at work. God was at work in the Old Testament. He was working in the New Testament. And y'all are all living proof that he's working in you today. And let's see. Especially in the role of evangelism, God is at work. Let's see. Jeannie? Is this you? Yeah. Would you read that? God causes the growth. So when Tom said last week and Alex has said, we want to kind of talk about evangelism, evangelism uh, the rest of this year, this takes the pressure off of you and me. This isn't us at work. It's God at work. He's going to have his perfect purpose be done. No matter what we face or go up against. Because just like with old King Jehoshaphat, the battle's not ours. It's God's. And just listen to these verses. Hun? Don't those verses just grab you and make you want to stand up and thank God? 
doesn't make any sense when you read about who we were prior to accepting Christ as our Savior. What kind of God would want people like that? While we were still sinners, while we're still, we were still at odds with him, while we were still his enemies, What we've seen in these few verses is that God has been doing and we know that he is doing and he will always do whatever it takes his part in accomplishing his plans, his promises. You know, all of those things that God causes to work together for good for those of us who love him, that's but God at work. Those are miracles every instant of every day. His miracles. But you know, he doesn't just tell us, hey, I've got this, Greg. Sit sit back. Go do what you want to do. Have your iced tea. Rock a little bit in your chair. Uh, go elk hunting. Go eat bonbons. I don't even know what a bonbon is. But he tells us we got things to do. If you remember when the young man asked Christ, what are the teacher, good teacher, what are the, the two most important commandments? What did Christ tell him? What was the first one? Love God. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. What was number two? Love your neighbor as yourself. Absolutely. I was I was laughing. I've got a, a friend of mine who sends me verses and prayers in the morning on a text. And we were talking about loving one another. I said, you know, I'm really good at the loving God part, I think. I know I can get better, but loving my neighbor sometimes is a little tough. So I have to just settle on Jesus loves you. I'm still at work at this. So I don't say that in my out loud voice to people, but. Um, that's what God requires. What better way to love someone than to tell them about Christ and let him come to find out all the things that we've come to find out and all the riches that we just read about this morning. God expects us to trust him, believe in him, believe Christ is the son of God, born of a virgin, walked the face of the earth, lived the gospel message, was sinless, was raised up on the cross, was crucified for us, was buried and resurrected because God had a plan, and he still does. And he expects us to share that good news. So remember, it's his battle. Remember, he has a plan. Man makes plans and God laughs. This last verse is very fitting to close with, I think. Psalm 73, verses 23 through 28, it happens to be one of Jim Blanton's favorite psalms. It says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you, 
You have taken hold of my right hand. You will guide me with your plan and afterward receive me to glory. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And with you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are faithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is good for me. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so that I may tell of all thy works. <clears throat> 